This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. The conversation about how to respond and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results. The core of the problem must be addressed, and that is the nature of modern policing itself. Broken windows practices, the militarization of law enforcement, and the dramatic expansion of the role of police have created a mandate for officers that must be rolled back. This book shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, and even public safety. Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reduction in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Why have the size of American police departments grown so dramatically in recent decades, even as crime rates have fallen? There are a lot of possible answers to this question. A good starting point for any analysis of the carceral state is that its existence is overdetermined. One factor, however, may have been the growing centrality of real estate for urban economies. That's according to a new article published in the journal Social Forces by Adam Goldstein, a professor of sociology at Princeton, and Brendan Beck, a PhD student in sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center. Before we get down to business on this Friday diglet, however, I want to encourage you to support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We met our goal of 100 new supporters on Patreon for October and are aiming for another 100 this month, November. If you like the show and listen to the show but haven't donated yet, take a quick moment to support independent left-wing media. We need it. Also, we have a new animated ad out for the show. It's made by Ramin Rani, the super talented guy who made that DSA ad, Thanks Capitalism. The point of the ad is to introduce the show to new listeners who at present might not know that we exist. And some of those potential listeners might be your friends and family. So take a minute to share our video on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks. Here's the show. 
Brendan Beck, welcome to The Dig. Uh, it's great to be on. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> you do know that I called you, but um, <laughs> and I'm just not going to let you get away with lying to the listeners. Not this time. Sure, sure. Uh, to, to kick this off, you found evidence, uh, along with Adam Goldstein, that places with more pronounced reliance on housing price growth and mortgage investment exhibited correspondingly greater growth of local law enforcement, as did places with decreased social spend, social service spending. Unpack uh, exactly what you found. Yeah, so the central research question that we were grappling with was why did police spending increase between 1990 and 2010 when crime was, was falling, uh, right? The ostensible reason for policing crime was going away, and yet um, cities were spending, in the U.S., cities were spending ever more on, on police. And one hypothesis that, that we found that, that we, in conjunction with Jonathan Simon, who's a law professor at, at Berkeley, had started to think about was um, perhaps the, the housing market bubble played a role. You know, the, the housing market bubble from the mid-1990s until 2007, 2008, perhaps that played a role, that, that as cities were becoming more dependent on housing price growth, they were spending more on police in an attempt uh, to protect that housing value, right? Because housing values and, and crime rates are so closely connected. Um, so we tested this. We, we uh, collected a data set with about 171 large cities over 20 years um, and performed some regression analyses to try to answer this. And we found, um, like you said, that indeed places that saw a large um, housing market boom saw um, – a corresponding increase in their their police spending. Now, you know, this we have to be cautious as as uh, researchers that this is, you know, our, our effect size was modest. You know, this isn't the only or or even among the largest influencers on police budgeting. Uh, but and and we would hope that the study would be replicated by other researchers until we were, you know, to be even more sure. Um, but our our results suggest that indeed, as cities undergo these housing bubbles, they're likely to spend more on police. We also found that cities that spent less on social services uh, spent more on police, which which gets at this idea that um, you know there's a shift from uh, sort of the left hand, the left social service provision hand of the of the city government and a, a shift towards the more punitive right hand of the city government. And this is kind of a it's a longstanding piece of analysis on the left that the rise of the carceral state um, accompanies the retreat of the social state, that there's a relationship between over policing and mass incarceration on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other. But what you're trying to do here is look at some quantitative data to see if if that holds up. Right. So we um, the data we collected, again, from from 171 large cities in the U.S., um, shows that the, the, the average city in that sample decreased its social service spending by about 8 percent and increased its police spending by about 12 percent um, between 1990 and 2010. Right. And then not only that, but we went a step further and showed that not only these were these coterminous, you know, the, these trends of, of defunding social services and, and funding policing, not only were they happening in the same time and place, but they were happening um, uh, in, in a you know related way that they moved together statistically um, in a related way. And so trying to, to put some um, quantitative flesh on the on the theoretical bones of this this longstanding idea. I want to go through each of the factors at play here in a little bit of detail. First, can you talk about what the scope of the expansion of American policing has been in recent decades, what that's looked like, what its impact 
has been on the ground and how it's played into mass incarceration? Sure. So um, in the years we looked at, 90 to 2010, um, the average city increased its police spending uh, from about $160 per person uh, to over $240 per person, right? 160 to, to 240 in the 20-year period. So 50%, wow. a 50% increase. Um, and so when we talk about police expansion, this is what we mean, that the size of police departments are growing, both the amount of money um, that cities are spending on police, but also the number of police officers that they're they're hiring, right? About about 90% of most police budgets goes to, to personnel. So, um, you know, the police departments were getting larger. Um, other theorists have, have talked about how, uh, the, uh, you know, along with this growth in police department size, there's a growth in the portfolio of things they're expected to respond to, right? That um, more and more social problems are getting assigned to, to police, um, to be solved, right? So things like terrorism, um, drug use, right? We, we have a criminal justice response, not a um, public health response to drug use. So we, we expect police to fix that. Homelessness, right? Police are expected to um, be our first line in housing insecurity, right? We're sending more and more police to schools. Um, I know you had- This is this idea of governing through crime. Right. So, right. So Jonathan Simon, who we rely on for this article, calls it governing through crime, right? Government is is channeling more and more functions through its crime control function. Um, you know, Alex Vitali, who you had on a couple of weeks ago on the show, you know, talks about this in his new book. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, calls it the, um, you know, the transition from from welfare Keynesianism to, to carceral Keynesianism, right? Using um, crime and crime control as the, as the primary response to social problems. So when we talk about police expansion, its growth in size, its growth in responsibilities. Interestingly, it's corresponded with a decline in the number of arrests. Police are making fewer arrests than they were 30 years ago. Um, per, per officer or aggregate or both? Uh, yeah, both. Um, so, you know, so that's sort of an interesting twist on this is that as police departments are getting larger, they're actually you know doing less, which is, depending on your politics, a, um, a good thing or a bad thing. But um, – you know, so so it's not. A, it would it would be nice. It would be a nice, neat, you know, monolithic story if we said, well, police were, were getting more vast in every way. But you know, crime has been going down, and so there's fewer opportunities for them to make arrests, right? So um, the spending is not only divorced from crime, but it's divorced from you know the the arrest functions. Um, but you know, so what we were looking in this in this article, we weren't looking at the changes in arrests. I I analyze those trends in some other research I'm working on. But what we're focusing on is really that the expenditure growth. We're, our unit of analysis is sort of the city government. Where is city government directing its resources? Um, not our level of analysis isn't so much the police department. How is it you know using the resources it has, but rather the city government? And so when when we talk about policing growth, we mean expenditure and number of officers. That disjuncture between the number of officers and arrests is something I want to get to in some more detail later, because I think it gets to the uh, one really important insight um, that follows from your study. But first, another factor, talk a little bit about the real estate piece of this. What do you mean when you say that the importance of the housing market grew? And what role did that growth play in a broadly restructuring American economy? Yeah. So when we say that cities were becoming more dependent on housing market growth, um, we mean that 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 was happening on a few different levels. So at the micro level, homeowners were coming coming to rely more on on home equity um, to to um, supplement their their stagnant wages. Right. We know that since the 1970s, uh, the average worker hasn't gotten much of a raise. And so 
uh, during the 1990s and early aughts housing bubble, the only way they were they were getting more money was through the equity in their home, right? So they, the, their home would be worth more money. That would increase their equity. They could borrow against that equity and and use the the money to you know fund household expenses, right? So homeowners were becoming more dependent on home equity to su supplement their their stagnant wages. So at the micro level, at the meso level of of governments and institutions, city governments and regional governments were becoming more and more dependent on housing job growth, right? In in California between 2000 and 2005, half of all new jobs were in the real estate sector, right? So construction, real estate, housing jobs. So governments were starting to become more dependent on housing market growth for for the jobs that they need, right? They had to um, they have to fuel uh, economic productivity. They've got to create jobs. That's one of the, the top goals of, of city elites and, and city governments. And the way this was happening more and more was through the housing sector, not through right, retail or tourism or, or manufacturing, certainly, uh, but more and more it was happening through housing. Uh, so that's the, the meso level. At the macro level, right, and this, this story is a little more familiar, um, global financial interests were repackaging mortgages and selling them on the secondary mortgage market, right? Uh, Mortgage-backed securities, et cetera. So at the, at the macro level, global capitalism was promoting uh, an economy increasingly oriented around housing in that respect, right? So at the, at the homeowner, government, and financial level, you have an economy reshaping itself around housing and becoming more and more important. And of course, that importance crashed in 2008 when, when the economy, uh, when the subprime um, uh, mortgage crisis happened and, and ended up taking down much of the economy with it. So this reorientation, we suspect um, and have, have since shown, uh, had an effect not just on things like housing, but also had a spillover effects on things like policing, where cities tried to spend more on police in an attempt, probably futile, to protect that housing investment. How did this play out in particular in cities, which at the very same time as the economy was reorganized, reoriented towards real estate so dramatically. Many cities were coming out of this decades-long process of disinvestment and decline as a result of the resegregation of the metropolis uh, via suburbanization, and then, you know, turning the corner to gentrification. So how did that, how did this bigger picture play out in cities? Right. Um, I mean, you know, this is it's very much an urban story. You know, it happened more so in, in cities in the Sun Belt, you know, California, Nevada, Arizona, Florida than elsewhere. But almost every city in our sample um, from Corpus Christi, Texas to, to Springfield, Illinois, saw uh, an increase in, in its housing price and in the number of mortgages. So I, I should mention the way we measure um, housing market reliance is we look at the housing price index, right? How much are homes worth in the city? And we look at the number of new mortgages. So how many um mortgage originations were there, but also how many second mortgages, right? Refinancing and um, homeowners uh, taking out loans against their, their equity. So, you know, this this trend in housing market reliance was was happening in almost every city. Um, and if, and as you note, it was overlaid on top of the segregation and um, and inequality that was already existing in those in those cities. So, you know, we didn't test explicitly the the quantitative relationship between segregation and housing market um Growth, but uh, you know, you can certainly um, guess that the the way these are interacting might have fueled um, policing in several different ways. Uh, you know, there's this uh, idea in in sociology called racial threat, um, where the the study after study it has shown that the size of a city's police budget 
is um, really well predicted by the size of the city's um, black and Latino population, right? And and that gets explained as, as what's called racial threat, or we might just call you know the racism of city government, but that um, city governments react to um, growing populations of black and Latinos in their cities um, by spending more on police. So um, they, uh, another common way that city governments react to racial threat and, and city um, uh, homeowners react to racial threat is by increasing segregation, right? So these things are definitely linked and, and we didn't test segregation ex- explicitly, um, but I, I think absolutely it, it played a role. And the last factor I want you to talk about is the decrease in social service spending. What sort of cuts to what are we talking about here? Yeah, so so we measured social service spending as the amount that the city spends on cash welfare uh Healthcare, which is mostly hospitals and uh, public housing, um, and you know uh, every city has a slightly different story. Um, but on on average, like I said, the 171 cities in our sample saw an eight percent decrease in its in its welfare, healthcare, and housing spending. So the social spending decrease we're talking about is at the city level. Of course, there's much social spending happening. You know, states uh, provide social services, and of course, the federal government with with TANF and WIC and food stamps and those sort of things. So we're just looking at the city level because we want to see, you know, all right, what was what were these cities doing as social spending was decreasing, right? As the the legitimacy of the welfare state was was withering, what did how did cities react? And and what we found was that cities um, often spent more on police in response to this delegitimization of of social spending. You look at this key historical period, which is the 1990s through the 2000s. Violent and property crime rates had skyrocketed during the early years of the war on crime, which provided a backdrop that was conducive to the law and order politics that took hold in those decades of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Not that they explain those politics or excuse them, but they were certainly conducive to them. But beginning in the 90s, which is when the period the bit that you start to look at, crime rates had begun to plummet, yet policing and incarceration continued to rise. Defenders of these hardcore law and order politics would say to you, I think, that this isn't so much a paradox that uh, two sociologists need to unpack, but <laughs> rather that crime was going down because policing was working. And I take it that you disagree with this. Why? This is a common narrative, right, that that spending more on police will decrease crime. And I don't disagree with it, you know, out of some ideological conviction, but rather the data don't support it. Right. So certainly if you look uh, from 1990 to 2010, um, police spending was going up while crime rates were going down. Right. So just looking at that snapshot, you might think, well, maybe more police spending mean was the reason that crime was going down. Right. But if you widen the the temporal lens back to 1970, you see that from 1970 to 1990, uh, police spending and crime were rising in tandem. Right. So um, from 1970 to 1990, both were going up. And then from 1990 to 2010, police uh, spending kept going up and become became, you know, decoupled from any sort of crime trends as, as crime went down. Right. So certainly over the past 50 years, there's no consistent aggregate trend in um, the police crime relationship. Uh, now, a lot of, of ink has been spilled in academic journal articles trying to, to better measure the relationship, the quantitative relationship between police spending and crime. 
And there was a really good meta-analysis that came out last year from, from three researchers at the University of Cincinnati in, in their criminal justice department. And they found, they looked at 62 studies that have, that have looked at the relationship between police spending and crime. And they found no statistically significant um, relationship between uh, additional police spending and additional crime reduction, right? So the, the academic literature on this is pretty pretty clear that there's not a relationship between policing and crime. Of course, this goes against the very entrenched common sense narrative, right, is that the police are an effective response to crime. Um, and so, you know, it, I, I, um, I don't expect that the, you know, the common sense narrative is going to turn on a dime because, you know, of, of a meta-analysis published in an academic journal. But um, I, I think... I thought, I thought your analysis was going to effectively just force the Manhattan Institute to shut down. That was right, right. Yeah. Um, well, the you know the uh, I'd love for Heather McDonald to to take a look at our article, but um, you know so so you know we're looking at the the, the inverse causal or the reverse causal relationship, right? How does crime affect police budgets? But other other researchers that have looked at the flip, how do police budgets affect crime? Haven't found much there. Um, you know, Stephen Levitt, the celebrity economist of Freakonomics fame. Uh, published a couple articles that sh uh, purport to show uh, suppressive effect of policing on robbery crimes. Um, you know, I haven't dug too much into the the methodology of those specific articles, but but like I said, this meta analysis um, synthesized findings from sixty two different studies and, and didn't find an effect. So I'm I'm going to go with that one. It's almost as if we don't live in a Hobbesian state of nature where people only choose not to commit crime when police are making them be good. Right. Yeah. There, there's that. Um, that movie, The Purge, right, where one day a year, one night a year or something, um, all, all crimes are legal and, and violence is just unleashed, right? And I, I think what we'd find is that um, people actually don't have much of a sense of, um, you know, what what sort of uh, punishments are. You know, the, if you ask the average person on the street, what's the average punishment for an armed robbery? You know, they're not going to be able to tell you. So the idea that, that increasing sentence length or increasing the number of police is going to deter that crime, I think, is belied by um, some other common sense. But you know, yeah, uh, there are a few layers of 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 mis of bad ideas here. I think one is this really pessimistic view of human nature that people will take the first opportunity to do something horrible to another person. Rebecca Solnit writes about this on her book on uh, how people react to disasters. People always think that everyone's going to cannibalize each other, which we saw with all of the false reports. Uh, of people being predators in the Superdome after Hurricane Katrina when what was actually happening was people were coming together to help each other survive. And then the second layer is that's premised on this pessimistic view of human nature is this notion of the effectiveness of deterrence, whether it be police deterrence or sentencing-based deterrence, that uh, that's not actually grounded in, in research. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. How much of the causal story about the massive expansion of American policing does your story tell? Does real estate tell? And yeah. what are the other pieces? Yeah, and, and and sorry to be nitpicky here, but when we say the expansion of policing, right, we mean the expansion of we mean larger police departments, right? We don't mean the, the enlargement yes. of arrests. No, nitpick um, away. Okay. Um so uh right, I you know, like I said, um housing and housing market reliance is hardly the the only or even the largest um influence on police budgeting. So some other common, um, common and, and I think persuasive explanations for police budget growth 
are the following. There's the, the sort of the most boring, but I think important explanation is just bureaucratic path dependency, right? That um, when you when you build a, a city government and you sort of send it on this path, it's hard to change. That you you know every year police get more and more funding. No mayor or city council wants to be the ones that um, that decreased uh, police spending and then had some horrible crime happen. Uh, and you've also built this bureaucracy called the police department that has its own you know um, internal logic and, and police chiefs are are always quoted, you know, are, 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 can easily get quotes into newspapers. And, and so if they think they need more funding, they, it won't be hard to find a journalist to, to write that. So there's this sort of this path dependency that it's hard to get, you know, cities off the path of ever increasing police budgets. But of course, that that's both, I think, an important explanation and also a sort of banal and, and not super helpful explanation because things do change, right? Sometimes city government does change path as it has in the past. So what might account for changes um, is, is something we try to look at. Another common explanation, and, and I think persuasive explanation for the growth in police budgeting is racism, right? The Michelle Alexander, or, you know, I mean, since time immemorial, pe you know, people have, have talked about the relationship between police and racism. And like I said before, there's, there's a robust uh, quantitative social social science literature that shows that as a um, the as the size of a city's police I'm sorry as the size of a city's black and latino population grows so too does its police budget right and we found that in our study so we found that um, in the 171 studies that we looked at if, if they experienced a growth in their latino population they saw um, a growth in their police budget right and and a lot of cities were seeing growth in their latino populations during this time um, not the the Black populations weren't weren't um, increasing in, in quite the same way, but so I think racism is an important explanation for for police budget size. Um, and then finally, you know, there's this, like I said before, this mission creep, right, where we're giving police more and ever more missions that we're expecting them to do, from terrorism to to you know dealing with sex work and and disorder and and schooling. So you know, our study is a subset of this mission creep explanation, right, which is that we're adding another mission to the police department, which is they need to provide uh, a safe uh, investment atmosphere for housing price growth, right? Um, so right, uh, we're not trying to say that housing price reliance or housing market reliance is the greatest factor, but we think it's an important brick in the wall. It seems to me that one analysis that this fits into and complicates is the account as to why broken windows and public order policing became so prevalent in recent decades. The The story that I've mostly heard is kind of an ideological account centered in Manhattan Institute type places of, of people pushing out this idea that cracking down on the small stuff will ultimately discourage people from committing the big stuff. Does your analysis of the role of, of real estate add a materialist valence to, to this ideological story? I think that broken windows was definitely used to justify more and more police spending, right? That, um, you know, as violent crime was starting to decline in the 90s, um, police departments said, well, yeah, violent crime might be going down, but now we have these squeegee men and, and disorder crimes that, that we need to deal with, right? So I think um, there's definitely a relationship there. And I think uh, real estate capitalism could feed into that in that it says, all right, well, you know, the, the squeegee man who, or, you know, the, the vagrant who's on my corner um, is threatening me not in a safety way, you know, I don't, I don't, he's harmless, but he's threatening my home value, right? He's um, taking down the, the value of my uh, 
of my real estate. So, um, you know, we need to, we need a police response to him, not out of some of, out of some concern, uh, over my safety, but over concern over the value of my home. So I, th I think the two definitely could be linked, you know, broken windows is a slippery concept. It, it means a lot of different things. And, um, you know, so I, it, uh, I, I don't know how much it, it dovetails with just general, you know, police, uh, demand, you know, demands for more punitive policing. Um, but it was certainly a trend. It was certainly a phenomenon that was going on at the same time as the trend we're describing. The way I see your study as casting some casting the history of broken windows in in a different light is the sense that critics of broken windows have always pointed out that that it's very pretext and and premise, which is that the reason we crack down on small public order offenses is because those public order offenses you know, the squeegee men, the turnstile jumping, the graffiti, creating an environment that's conducive for much more serious crimes that people actually care about. Because, you know, they, they they had to have an excuse to say why they're going to hammer someone for jumping a turnstile. And that excuse is, well, that turnstile jumper is actually sort of cr creating the sort of urban environment that's going to get more likely to get you murdered. Um, and that never made a whole lot of, of, of sense. And your analysis, on the other hand, does make sense. You know, getting the homeless person off the corner and into a squad car, cracking down on the people hanging out in the corner, having a beer, the thing that those things might concretely address, or at least be perceived to concretely address by, by homeowners, is, is the value of real estate. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and and I, I will I'll just underline something you said, which is that it um it might not address it might not actually change the home value, um but it might change you know people might think it would do that right um our study doesn't examine whether more policing has an effect on home prices um more police spending rather um I suspect that it doesn't right because as I said before it, it has a pretty it has an incredibly weak relationship to crime, so I have a hunch it has an incredibly weak relationship to home prices as well. But you're exactly right that that someone might perceive it to do that. You, I, I had no idea this was the case. This was a shocking thing that you cited. You wrote that police departments in many cities even adopted housing price appreciation as a formal performance metric, metric aligning their own organizational practices with the real estate market. That's remarkable. Yeah, th th that quote you read is, is from the Police Executive Research Forum, which is a membership organization of different police chiefs and um, people working in, in police departments. And it's it's pretty remarkable, right? It, in spun a slightly different way, it, it sounds pretty Marxist, right? That the that the base of the economy, right, the housing market, should dictate the superstructure of police, right? That the police should align their um, uh, performance metrics with the market, right? And this was this is hardly an, an isolated. Um, Example, you know, we we looked through newspaper clippings and found um, examples from Toledo and Tampa and Seattle of police chiefs and mayors, you know, talking about how. Well, here I'll just I'll read one quote from the the police chief in Minneapolis said in in two thousand one, quote, "My officers should have pride in the growth of Minneapolis, its vibrant downtown, and its rising home values." Right. End quote. So, right, the the police chief is is making this connection that my officers should measure their success based on home values, right? That our role is to um, produce conducive housing investment um, atmospheres, right? So it's, it's not, you know, th there's, there's people like Jonathan Simon and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and, and Adam and I that have um, theorized that, this, that, that there's connection between home values, but it's also how it's experienced and, and explained by police chiefs and, and city government officials on the ground as well. 
Brendan, I, my understanding is that the article that we've been discussing this episode is paywalled, which is fine for the academically affiliated who are listening. Is there some way that those who do not have such an affiliation can access it? Sure, yeah. If, if you don't have access through a library, people can just email me, uh, brendanbeck at gmail.com, uh, and I'd be happy to to send people a copy that I can share. And that's Brendan with two E's. Yeah, uh, Brendan Beck, all E's. <laughs> Brendan Beck, all E's. Thank you very much. Sure thing. Thanks a lot, Dan. Brendan Beck is a PhD student in sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once surreptitiously remarked, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends and family. So please do so. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And so is your support, your financial support. And you can offer us such support on patreon.com. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Thank you.